criminal behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. Hello, and this is Criminal Behaviorology. I'm your host, Timothy Joseph. I hope you missed us. We're back making podcasts. We've had a lot of interest uh, in the field. I'm going to be speaking at the Massachusetts Association for Applied Behavior Analysis on uh, applied behavior analysis in the criminal justice system. May have a few more speaking engagements in the future. Gotten a lot of interest from people in our field that want to pursue careers, supervision, things of that nature. And so it's all very exciting. I have a really good guest today, and it is Tony Bigland, author of The Nurture Effect. Tony has been an advocate researcher and behavior analyst for many years. His 2015 book covers many areas including adolescent behavior problems, cigarette smoking, mental health treatment, corporate influence through precise behaviorally derived marketing campaigns. In this discussion, Tony gives us an optimistic worldview but shows the need for how behavioral science is the key to making a better world. So he talks about his own personal journey in seeing how behavior analysis can be used to solve interpersonal and mental health problems. He talks about the good behavior game and the reduction in child misconduct, private prisons and criminal justice, acceptance and commitment therapy, and schizophrenia. A lot of topics here. Corporations marketing to the young. Tony's thoughts on capitalism and modern society. The significance of the Powell memo. And his appearance where I sat right next to him at the uh, 2018 Association for Behavior Analysis International uh, substance abuse conference that was in Washington, D.C. I was sitting next to him in the audience, and he went up and gave a uh, very insightful talk to the audience. So you know, enjoy the podcast. Uh, the views expressed by uh, Tony and all our guests do not necessarily reflect those of criminal behaviorology, nor our sponsors, if we had any. But it's a great talk nonetheless. Uh, go ahead and look up his website, valuestoaction.org, and let's just go ahead and get to the interview with Tony. Okay, we are here with Tony Biglin, author of The Nurture Effect, How the Science of Human Behavior Can Improve Our Lives and Our World. So thank you, Tony. Uh, how are you today? I'm well. Glad to be here. Excellent. Um, so, uh, just to start off, what what can you tell us you you uh, about your own personal journey and what led to you to the interest in uh, the nurture effect, the the concepts of behaviorism? Where did you start out on these ideas, and where are you now? Well, <laughs> I'm seventy seven years old, so it's a long story. You may have to cut me off. Um, I was uh, trained in social psychology and organizational psychology at the University of Illinois. And for my doctoral dissertation, uh, I decided that I wanted to study the relationship between academic areas and the the organization of university departments, something I'm a long way away from now. Mm -hmm. And so I did a, uh, an analysis where I got scholars to tell me, uh, how they saw the similarities and differences among academic areas. And I had 36 academic areas and I got data from 36 uh, different, uh, you know, five scholars in each of these areas. And we did a multidimensional scaling of the characteristics of academic areas. Mm -hmm. 
And um, what we found was that you could dimensionalize academic areas in three dimensions, uh, pure and applied, biological, non-biological. And the, and the one that accounted for the most variance was uh, what I came to call paradigmatic and non-paradigmatic. So mm -hmm. the paradigmatic areas were areas that had a clear paradigm, mm -hmm. physics, chemistry, uh, also the applied aspects of that, engineering and so on, all had a pretty well worked out paradigm. And at the other end, there were things like philosophy and literature and history and so mm -hmm. on that didn't really have a paradigm that everybody agreed on. And in fact, if you looked at that, uh, psychology was over to the non-paradigmatic mm -hmm. side. And this is a 1970. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that and said, that's about right. You know, there's people with this theory of psychology and that theory of psychology and so on. So um, I published that. And um, it was actually about 10 years later, somebody, our librarian came to me with a, a paper that was called, titled, The Biglund Model, Case Study of an Eponym. So I ran to the dictionary to find out what an eponym was. And it's something that's named for somebody like Brownian motion. Okay. And it turns out that people had found this analysis very helpful in terms of understanding uh, academic fields. And library science used it and or people working in organization of universities. And in fact, the Biglin model is still the thing that is, you know, I get the most, uh, but I left the field, you know, I, it never did me any good. But anyway, <laughs> um, so um, about that time, um, I was and, and this was in, in the in 1970. And this was a time when we were against the war in Vietnam and I was involved in radical politics and, uh, you know, and it was like, what are you into? Right? Mm -hmm. So um, I started talking to Robert Kohlenberg, who is, uh, had an office across the hall from mine. And um, I was teaching something uh, that I described to him and he said, yeah, but, but they've got it all wrong. It's B.F. Skinner is what you need to read. So I started reading B.F. Skinner. And at first I was reading uh, verbal behavior and I didn't really understand that. So I started reading uh, the, um, uh, uh, his, uh, uh, the, the 1953 book. Uh, uh, Science, Science and, and Human, Human Behavior. Behavior. Right. Yeah. So as I'm reading that, I'm re beginning to realize that he's proposing a paradigm. Mm -hmm. And he's arguing that every aspect of human behavior can be understood in terms of the selection of behavior by its consequences, mm -hmm. and that that actually fits into the larger scheme of evolutionary theory. Mm -hmm. So I started reading that, and I decided that I didn't want to be a social psychologist. I want to be a clinical psychologist, mm -hmm. and I applied for an internship at the University of Wisconsin, mm -hmm. uh, and I spent a year at the University of Wisconsin and I had a $500 book allowance, which in 1970 was a hell of a lot of money. And I didn't have that much to do. So I read and read and read. And I had a mentor there who was a psychiatrist who'd read everything, uh, everything in, in, uh, in, si in behavioral science and, and, and so on. And I became a behaviorist, a mm -hmm. behavior therapist and so on. Um, so that, you know, changed my, my thinking. I told you I had a long yeah, answer yeah. to your question. Uh, what was it like being a behavior therapist, as you might call it, back in those early days? Well, uh, I was one of a couple of people, young, new PhDs who were into behavioral stuff in, a, in a, a, uh, an analytically oriented psychiatry department, and they put up with us. Okay. Uh, but I, but, you know, I, I, I learned, I began to learn to use behavioral techniques. And, and one of the first cases I had was a, a, a little girl is about three years old who would not eat solid food mm -hmm. and was hospitalized for it. And, um, we figured out how to mm -hmm. get her eating and it, you know, and it was, it was, it was, it was good. It was a good year. Mm -hmm. And then I went to the university of, um, Oregon for a year. I was going to spend a year here. And there was the University of Oregon at that time had really embraced behavioral things, not just in psychology, mm -hmm. but also in the College of Education. And so you had people like uh, Hill Walker 
working on school-based things and uh, Jerry Patterson working on, uh, you know, clinical interventions with aggressive kids and so on. And, and you know, doing studies with, you know, where nobody had ever really tried mm-hmm. uh, using consequences to affect uh, human behavior. This was at the very beginning of it. And so actually I can fast forward because I wrote The Nurture Effect because I felt like, you know, here is a paradigm and I understood that paradigm and I'm just the, you know, a yeoman scientist who's going to mine that paradigm. I didn't expect to do anything particularly important and I don't think I did. But I wrote The Nurture Effect as sort of a memoir of having been there at the revolution in human behavior, which, you know, it's a Copernican revolution, what has happened Mm -hmm. in the last 50 years in behavioral sciences. And so I, you know, I tried in the nurture effect to to organize what we had learned and and to do it in a way that would be, um, you know, readable to people who weren't, uh, you know, particularly behavioral scientists. I've been, I think that's been fairly successful, but um, I never hit the New York Times bestseller list, and uh, I tried to get uh, Nicholas Kristof uh, to pay attention to it because he went to an elementary school in which I introduced the Pax Good Behavior game. Oh. Uh, but anyway, that's a long story. So yeah, I'll stop talking and can ask another question. Uh, I'll get to the Good Behavior game. I, I was just going to say, so this is criminal behaviorology podcast and I've tried to come up with ways, you know, improve society, help people out. And I've used this byline before, which is yours. How can behavioral science become our most important science? Uh, what would you say to that? And, and by the way, when you say uh, uh, a Copernicus was, you know, the, the earth is, is not the center of the universe, and then Darwin was, you know, we are just part of the living world and now go through the same processes as the living world. Well, and, and in fact, uh, I at the same time that I, you know, I talked about my history uh, with getting into Skinner, but I had also read The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, prepared me to see this as a paradigm. And in fact, that's what got me to see that first dimension is paradigmatic and non-paradigmatic. So, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, you asked the question, well, how do we make this a more important science? Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose the main way we do it is by making a difference in, in human well-being, mm-hmm. thanks to that science. Um, but it can be frustrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, uh, Phil Knight, who created Nike uh, and started here in Eugene, um, has just pledged another $500 million to the science uh, activities at the University of Oregon. Well, that's nice, but this is the physical sciences. And I submit that the physical sciences are not going to solve the problems that we face as human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, we're involved in an effort to get more federal funding for behavioral science research on reducing greenhouse gas emissions We've done an analysis of the uh, federal funding, and it's appalling how little there is. Mm-hmm. But I want to, I want to come, I want to directly come back to the criminal behaviorology because mm-hmm. um, you meant you noticed that I have one of my tacky books, uh, mm-hmm. and my tacky book promotion is rebooting capitalism: how we can forge a more uh, a, a, a more nurturing society, mm-hmm. a, a society that works for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I wrote that. Uh, after oh, after Trump was elected, mm-hmm. uh, but it's an evolutionary account of the evolution of capitalism over the last 50 years mm-hmm. and how it has corrupted our society. Mm-hmm. And on the basis of that book, I, and the book describes the reforms that are needed in every sector of society so that the, those sectors become more oriented toward ensuring the well-being of everyone rather than ensuring that some people can get very wealthy. Mm-hmm. And so you can go into the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. the healthcare system, higher education, uh, media. And in all of those areas, uh, the dominant, you know, free market idea that if I just pursue my own economic well-being, it'll benefit everyone, uh, you know, really reigns in those areas. 
I was I was just uh, finishing a letter to Atul Gawande, mm-hmm. who is a, uh, a physician at uh, Harvard University, who's written about this, and he shows how two cities in Texas, McCallum, Texas, and El Paso, have a huge difference in the amount of money that's spent on health care, and they have exact demographically they're the same, they're the same size, they have uh, you know. Uh, everything's pretty much the mm-hmm. same, except one spends uh, tw- twice as much. Uh, McCallum spends twice as much. So he studies this, and he shows that it's basically because the physicians in this community own the 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 machines, they own the the uh, the nursing homes, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. And if and so they're just maximizing their revenue. They're very clear about what affects their revenue and their behavior is selected by what maximizes mm-hmm. their revenue. But it's not selected by the impact on the population health. Population health is no better in McAllen, Texas than no. it is in El Paso, but they do a lot more of things that make money for them. Oh. And so, you know, you first of all, you got to get population health as the outcome we're trying to affect. So this is just an example of the reforms that are needed in, in medicine. But let me come back to the to, to criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have private prisons because uh, free market economics said, oh, yeah, they'll do better than government doing it. And, uh, you know, people are making a lot of money on that. That's just one example of the way that the criminal justice system is problematic. But what we have done with rebooting capitalism is we've created um, a nonprofit called Values to Action, and it's trying to implement reforms in every sector of society. And so we have meeting this week an action circle we've created that's working on how we could improve well-being of young people by reforming the juvenile justice system. Mm -hmm. And you may very well have things that could contribute to that. I invite you to become a member of uh, rebooting uh, of uh, values to action for $47. You can join it. Mm -hmm. You can join an action circle. What we're trying to do is write a guide to what a community could do to improve the juvenile justice system so that fewer people get into it in the first place, and we prevent all of the problems that uh, can be prevented through all of the kinds of things that I describe in, in uh, the nurture effect. And so, but, but what we're trying to do here is design what a local action circle could do to try to reform locally what's done with juveniles. And, and an awful lot of that is to implement preventive interventions mm-hmm. such that they never get into the uh, juvenile justice system in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and and the action circle was uh, instigated because one of the people who joined, a behavior analyst, uh, said, "I've always wanted to work on this." And so we said, "Okay, let's put together an action circle on that." So, I think I finished talking. Okay, and if you have a, actually later on, if you uh, after this, if you have a link, we can put that on the uh, with the podcast because I'd be interested in that. Uh, like I know what, yes. so many people that are interested in juvenile justice. Um, and 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 we we hope that we can we can create a movement in this country. Uh, we have action circles around improving reading instruction, which, by the way, is relevant to preventing juvenile crime as well. Mm-hmm. We have them on social emotional learning, and so we think that we can help to create action circles in communities that are you know creating these implementing these reforms. So that's where we're trying to go. And if you have any millionaires in your audience, uh, we could use some uh, donations because so far this has been uh, uh, it's been funded by my retirement funds. Oh, well, we don't have too many, but I'm going to look around and and, uh, see. Yeah. Uh, Find me a millionaire. please. I, I know I'm not one, but we'll maybe we've got one or two out there related to what you said. What can you tell us about the good behavior game? And how it's been used uh, to, to make game. improvement. Well, so the Good Behavior Game was created by some behavior analysts in 1960s at mm-hmm. Kansas University. Uh, there was a woman who was um, uh, a her husband was a graduate student in the Department of Human Development, mm-hmm. and she was a teacher, and so she got a job teaching. 
just come in into Lawrence, Kansas, and, you know, she's going to be a teacher. And I think it was a third grade. And there were three third grades in that elementary school. And the teachers who were there the previous year sorted the kids into those three classrooms. Mm-hmm. And guess where they put all the kids, you know, that were problematic. Uh-huh. They put them in the classroom. And here, new teacher, you get to teach these yeah, kids. Yeah. So by Thanksgiving, she's ready to quit. Yeah. And her husband, who, you know, is dependent on her income, among other things, says, well, let's let's go talk uh, to, um, you know, some of the faculty uh, at KU. And so they, you know, they got together and they talked about it and they said, well, are these kids ever, you know, well behaved? So, well, if we have a spelling bee, they, you know, OK. So somehow they came up with the idea that, gee, if these kids could play a game and they could get a reward for cooperating, that that might work. And the, the first study was a multiple baseline design where they studied disruptive behavior in both reading mm-hmm. and math, and they implemented the game in just one of those. And and sure enough, disruptive behavior went way down when they did uh, the good behavior game. And when they removed the good behavior game, it went up again. Like, this is in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. There's like 40, 50 years of research on this, mostly done by behavior analysts. So they're doing multiple baseline designs, interrupted time series designs, no randomized trials. Mm-hmm. So uh, along comes uh, Shep Kellum, a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins University. Mm-hmm. And he's looking for something that would deal with kids who are shy and aggressive, uh, especially boys, because he's been studying you know, criminology and, and the development of criminal behavior. Uh, and so he's looking for an intervention. So he learns about the good behavior game from Joe Brady. They implemented in a randomized trial where they randomized kids to classrooms. They randomized teachers to classrooms. They randomized some classrooms to get the good behavior game and some not. Mm-hmm. And he, he studies the effect on disruptive behavior. He studies the effect of this. And he followed these kids into young adulthood. And he found that the kids who got the good behavior game just in first and second grade, and these are many kids are, in, you know, this is inner city Baltimore, mm-hmm. and they were significantly uh, less likely to have uh, problems with uh, uh, disruptive behavior, uh, ADHD. Uh, he followed them into middle school, and the kids who got it just in first and second grade were less likely to be arrested, less likely to smoke. He followed them into young adulthood and found that the kids who got the good behavior game, it basically helped them to develop cooperation, self-regulation, uh, and that that carried them forward. They were more likely to graduate high school, more likely to attend college, less likely to have suicidal problems or antisocial behavior problems or uh, um uh, depression. So, uh, uh, well, I, okay. So that was, you know, that was actually revolutionary. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it put the good behavior game on the map for many people and it showed the power of a preventive intervention. Mm-hmm. And the Washington State Institute for Public Policy has done an analysis of the return on investment for that, and it's about $60 for every dollar invested in it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you could get 60 bucks for every buck you put into an investment, you'd be the millionaire who could be funding the, you know, the, the, the values to action. So anyway, um, it's a game. So now, it's, a game it's a game where, the, where the, the competition is to be good. The competition is to be cooperative, exactly. Yeah. And the rewards initially were things like five minutes extra of recess. So, <laughs> so along comes Dennis Embry. Now, Dennis Embry was there when they developed the good behavior game in Kansas because mm-hmm. he was a graduate student there. He's a behavior analyst. So he looks at the manual that Shep used, and he looks at it and says, eh, teachers aren't going to be able to do this. So he figures out how he's going to do it. Well, I'm friends with Shep. I'm friends with Dennis. Mm-hmm. And when Shep found out that Dennis was going to do this, Shep was apoplectic because if he screwed it up and he tried to replicate it and it didn't replicate, it would look like, you know, Shep was, you know, fraudulent in some way. Right. Mm-hmm. So it took a while. But uh, the day came when I saw them in the lobby at the Society for Prevention Research walking toward each other mm-hmm. and they hugged. And I said, ah, oh, you know. <laughs> We settled that. But what Dennis did was he he took the game 
and he developed ways of training people, but he also added uh, a set of what he calls kernels. And Dennis and I have published a paper uh, on on kernels. And and by the way, if if you go to um, the Values to Action website, most of these papers they can people can find those papers there. But um, the kernels are simple behavior influence techniques. Most of them were developed. Uh, by behavior analysts. A lot of them were published in the Mm -hmm. Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. So there are things like, um, uh, uh, but but Dennis is very innovative. Uh, Granny's Wacky Prizes. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that if you have a a reward, but you don't even know what the reward is, it's actually more reinforcing than if, you know, you say, well, you'll have five minutes extra of recess. And so the Granny's Wacky Prizes are in a bag, called Granny's Wacky Prizes, and the teacher can reach in there, and if the if the class was on task, you know, for, let you know, we maybe just play it initially for five minutes, and you have groups of four kids, and you say, and you pull out Granny's Wacky Prize, and it says, hold your nose singing. Mm-hmm. Winning team holds their noses and sings a common nursery song, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. This sounds really, really silly. Suggested time a minute or so. Okay, mm-hmm. that's a reward. Every one of these rewards is follows the premac principle. You can uh, do something. Uh, it doesn't cost any money. It's an activity. Most of them are physical activities, which it's good to have kids be physically active, and the kids love it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so that's one of about ten uh, kernels that he uses in conjunction. Uh, with uh, actual playing the game. Uh, Dennis has now got, he's trained people in about 40,000 classrooms and it's growing exponentially in terms of the number of places that it's being implemented. And we're starting to do research to see if we can show population effects of the spread of the good behavior game. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, are kids less likely to need physician, you know, visits mm-hmm. are they more likely to do well uh we're looking at trying to do a study where we're looking at the uh reading proficiency of kids in elementary schools and correlating it with their exposure to the good behavior game mm-hmm. so it's an exciting development mm-hmm. a lot of people hearing this right now might, might put this uh good behavior game in the too good to be true category that they'll say it's like come on uh you're talking about you have a game, but you have this much benefit from it. But I'm not sure people always consider the the power of behavioral interventions. So you do the right intervention, and you can have a huge impact. Well, and and you know the the results of this line up pretty well with the physiology of uh, uh, mm-hmm. self regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kids are doing there, you know, if you got four kids in a group. And one of them's maybe the class clown and, you know, he's good at uh, doing something that everybody laughs, right? And the kid's getting reinforced for everybody laughing and so on. But now I'm in the group with them and I don't really want them to do that because we won't get our reward. Mm-hmm. So now you're changing the contingencies and that kid is getting reinforcement for mm-hmm. for inhibiting his, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, you know, disruptive behavior. So it teaches self-regulation mm-hmm. and, and it, and it, recruits the reinforcement of other kids mm-hmm. uh so and it's not a but, it's not a group therapy where we bring them into the group and they've got to each talk about how they feel or what's happened to them it's just an event where we're doing an intervention like this right it, it's a context for effective instruction it's not something that you teach separately from mm-hmm. the other things you teach it's simply a context uh for teaching uh you know, the things that kids need to learn about, like how to read. Mm-hmm. What about uh, that you've written in the book, A Third Wave in Behavior Therapy? In particular, uh, what we hear a lot about nowadays, if we're into this kind of stuff, acceptance and commitment therapy and how that's brought about change. So, um, how to talk about this. Uh, the it, it's it's behavior analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's consistent with what Skinner was saying, but it goes beyond it in some ways that troubled some behavior analysts. Mm-hmm. But in, in it's third wave in the sense that um, 
you know, the first wave of, of uh, behavior therapy was using you know, things like systematic desensitization, uh, essentially uh, conditioning procedures uh, that helped anxious people, uh, you know, get comfortable with things that frightened them and, and, and so on. And, and it, uh, Wolpe's work, he showed that systematic desensitization reduced uh, phobias. And so that was really based on conditioning principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it became uh, cognitive behavior therapy with uh, people like Bandura saying that uh, it's really people's cognitions that you need to study and and uh, uh, Beck uh, developing a version of treatment of depression where we're telling people that, you know, well, those thoughts are depressogenic and we want to help you to not replace these thoughts with those thoughts and so on. But the third wave was uh, really started, I think, primarily by Steve Hayes, and uh, but there are others as well uh, who deserve some of the credit. But what it did was it helped people to not try to control the thoughts and feelings that there were that were troubling them, but to become willing to accept those thoughts and feelings. And so um, rather than, you know, struggle to control things, it helped people to uh, to to have emotion. Uh, And so. Uh, it really changed the way we focused, and and I was a clinical psychologist at the and doing, you know, behavior therapy and worked a lot with people with anxiety, and I received uh, the first thing that uh, Steve Hayes had written about it. At that point, he called it comprehensive distancing, mm-hmm. and I began to study that, and I. And I realized that while I had been pretty successful with helping people with anxiety to become more calm and so on, that there were some people that I wasn't successful with. And it was in some ways because they would, um, uh, you know, I'm going to teach you to relax because you've been really anxious a lot and we're going to teach you the principles of relaxation, right? So if you're really into not feeling anxious, it's really important not to feel anxious, then okay, you did your relaxation, uh, you get up the next morning and you try, you know, oh, okay, I'm relaxed, I'm okay, I, I hopefully I won't have any of those panic attacks that I've had. I, oh, wait, oh, is that a panic? You know, mm-hmm. so if you're really focused on not feeling anxious, life is about anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that does not reduce your anxiety. That makes everything about not feeling anxious. And so, you know, what you need to do is help people to be willing to feel anxious and to turn away from making their life about not having these thoughts mm-hmm. and feelings, but rather have their life about what they want it to be. Mm-hmm. And it, and in fact, if you look up uh, uh, the, a TED talk that Steve Hayes did, where he describes okay. how this started, he was somebody who was plagued by panic attacks and, 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 and decided that he was going to accept them Mm -hmm. and that was what got the whole thing started and so it's been an amazing journey and there are you know thousands of of people of clinicians who've moved in that direction and there's a association of contextual behavioral science that was created and in part it was created because the association for behavior analysis as much as steve was a behavior analyst wasn't a very accepting home uh, for this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so he, they created a new organization. That's a theme that I hit a lot because I do a lot of talks to behavior analysts and point out to them that, uh, the society for, uh, for, uh, society, SPR, the society for prevention research, the association for positive behavior support, the society of behavioral medicine, the association of contextual behavioral science, all are, wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for foundational behavioral principles, but they were all sort of not accepted by the association for behavior analysis. So we got all these different organizations. We're trying to bring them back together. And I think we've made some progress on that. A bit of a schism there. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's old <laughs> bulls saying I'm right. Yeah. Um, well, in particular, so beyond uh, anxiety, the use of ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy with schizophrenia. And in your book, you have one uh, 
example of a patient uh, with schizophrenia that improved her life. I think her name was Emma. Uh, you probably had, maybe you've had more than one case, but what can you tell us about that? Well, it, it, I, I just report on it in the book, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, Steve and I wish I could remember her name because this is the woman who, who really did this work. Mm -hmm. um, what it's it's actually the same story as anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, if, if you've seen the movie that Russell Crowe was in, uh, Beautiful you know, Mind. Beautiful Mind, I think it was. Right. And, yeah. Right. And where he's uh, he's checking to see if that person is real or, or you know a hallucination. Yeah. And um, so imagine that you have a hallucination, mm -hmm. and you're frightened about this, mm -hmm. and eventually you tell a loved one. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they're frightened by it. Mm -hmm. And you go to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist said, oh, well, we know that this is, you know, this is a, a symptom of this disease and we need to get rid of these symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so everything is about not having hallucinations, right? Mm -hmm. well, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, was that a hallucination? You know, I have uh, from time to time ocular migraines. I used to have migraine headaches and, I, you know, you'd have these. And it would make you so sensitive because usually you notice them when you're reading text and there are spots in your vision, right? And so for a long time, I was like, you know, well, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so helping people to get clear about what they want in their lives and be willing to have what they have seems to work better. Mm -hmm. And that was how they reduced rehospitalization mm -hmm. in people with schizophrenia. A similar process with other kinds of things where uh, people are encouraged to get clear about what they want their lives to be about and move in the direction of what they want their lives to be about, in the, even in the context of thoughts and feelings that say you're wrong, you're bad, this mm -hmm. is you know terrible, you need to control this, and mm -hmm. so on. I think it was uh, Bach and Hayes that had written about that case. Ah. Yeah. Patty Bach, thank yeah, you. Patty Bach had written about that case. If she if she sees this now, she she will forgive me. So. We'll we'll give credit where credit's due. Then, so that that's very interesting. So yeah, it's it seems a little different than the like a standard so called medical model as I understand it, where the goal is is simply to reduce symptoms, reduce or eliminate yes. symptoms. Well, this is right. the acceptance of symptoms and moving right. on. You, you write a little bit in the book about marketing practices, especially ones that parents need to be aware of. And I found that to be really a fascinating part of it. Uh, uh, efforts, it, it sounds like advertising, marketing are using some behavioral principles of their own, and yet they are motivated by, by just uh, the consequences of the market to motivate them to, to get people to buy their products. Well, you know that the father of behaviorism, Watson, was drummed out of psychology because he had an affair yeah. at, I think, Johns Hopkins. Yeah. And he went, in, uh, he went uh, into marketing. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, marketing <laughs> principles are, uh, you know, in widespread use. Um, the, uh, in, in rebooting capitalism, actually, if you go to This View of Life, the online magazine that David Sloan Wilson created, mm -hmm. um, and you search my name, B-I-G-L-A-N, you'll find essays that I wrote, and there are five of them, which I couldn't fit in the Rebooting Capitalism book. They are uh, industries that evolved practices that are harmful to the population, though profitable to the industry. Mm -hmm. And so one of them is on the tobacco control. There are others on the pharmaceutical industry, mm -hmm. uh, the financial industry, the fossil fuel industry, uh, and the food industry. Mm -hmm. And in every case, uh, they evolve practices that worked for them, uh, but don't uh, improve the well-being of the population. And the tobacco control uh, the, the tobacco industry is 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 the prime example, and and where a lot of this got started, uh, they were some of the biggest innovators in marketing uh, throughout the 20th century. And um, I was a uh, an expert witness in U.S. versus Philip Morris et al., mm -hmm. which was a federal lawsuit 
uh, one of the largest they've ever had against the tobacco industry. And uh, they asked me to testify about the marketing of cigarettes to young people. Mm -hmm. And um, that led to my spending about a year preparing testimony on this and um, uh, and really understanding the degree to which the tobacco industry was uh, quite intentionally marketing to young people. Mm -hmm. uh, in general, uh, brand loyalty is established uh, by getting to the, the consumer before anybody else gets to the consumer. And so the tobacco industry was uh, fighting for that teenage smoker because most teen most people start, start smoking before uh, the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, it's a long story, but the, the tobacco industry evolved practices that worked. And, and when I say evolved, this is selection by consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Marlboro commercials were very successful mm -hmm. uh, uh, and they, they got, you know, young people to believe that if they smoke Marlboro, they would have friends and so on. And there's some truth to that because, you know, let's say uh, you want to be uh, popular and you maybe, you know, feel like you're so popular and so on, but you're seeing all these ads that say you'll be popular. But those ads are depicting the Marlboro smoker as somebody who's tough and rugged and independent and, mm -hmm. and, and knows what they want and, and is looked up to. Well, if you smoke Marlboros, your peers have already seen those ads, and so they're a little more likely to see you as you know somebody who has all those features. It's you know it's basically conditioning, mm -hmm. and so um, we um, the the Marlboro commercials uh, made at the leading brand by far. Well, R.J. Reynolds was trying to get its brands going, and it tried a series of ad campaigns. Uh, for camel and they all had sort of rugged people and so on and they just failed they failed and then they discovered uh joe camel the cartoon character yeah and uh and actually i i i have some paraphernalia from from this but that, I, I i it's not handy or i'd show it to you but um that worked the selection by consequences, you would see reports in the documents of the company that say, oh, we saw a 1% increase mm -hmm. in our sales as a result, mm -hmm. right? And now, you know, uh, Philip Morris has the data on the sales of their brands in every uh, convenience store in the country. They can try something in one, uh, you know, let's pick a 100 convenience stores and do this in those convenience stores and see its effect. I mean, this is precise yeah. behavior analysis, right? Uh, well, that part of the book really made me think, because were it not for the efforts of the, of the people trying to take on the tobacco companies and put in policies to get it under control, I think it's a good possibility I would have been a smoker. I mean, I, I have no interest in cigarettes. Uh, but right. with, with this much, uh, this much effort and behavioral technology being put in place for something that right. is an addictive drug, their, their right. success makes perfect sense. Well, and you just alluded to the tobacco control movement, and I, and that is a model for how we can deal with these things because despite hundreds of millions of dollars spent by the tobacco industry, We've significantly reduced the proportion of people who smoke through policies and and market uh, and 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 public education. Uh, that's it's really made a huge difference. However, uh, we haven't kept up uh, with some of the other countries because, if you'll mm -hmm. me for a second, um, Australia developed what they call plain packaging, but it's not plain packaging. It's graphic packaging, and this is a uh, an Australian package. I was an expert for Australia in one of their some of their litigation about whether or not they could do this. And then on the back, there's a picture of someone who died of smoking related illness, mm -hmm. and that has reduced smoking further in Australia. Uh, but 
but come back to the tobacco control movement for another reason. If you read Rebooting Capitalism, you'll, you know, I propose a series of reforms in, in uh, business, in higher education, and health, and so on. But what we need is a social movement, a movement that says um, we want to change practices in every one of these areas such that they, so that we select practices that benefit people and we, we diminish practices that harm people. Mm-hmm. which is to say we make sure that if you engage in a practice that can demonstrably show harm to uh, the population, you must lose money doing that. Mm-hmm. Take the pharmaceutical industry as an example. The pharmaceutical industry has made billions of dollars selling opiates, claiming that they were not as addictive as they in fact are, and they have caused hundreds of thousands of deaths due to that marketing, right? Right. They've paid penalties for their marketing, but they still made money. It's just the cost of doing business. That cannot be. We need a policy that says that any practice that harms the population has to be a money loser. And if you do that, that's the contingency that will will stop uh, the marketing of these harmful products. And it's true in the, the contribution of the, of the food industry to obesity, uh, the mm-hmm. cigarette industry, uh, and so on. What was the Powell memo, uh, a document about how corporations yes. uh, plan to make money? That was an interesting read. Tell us a little bit about the Powell memo from quite a long time well, ago. I elaborate on that in, in Rebooting Capitalism. Mm-hmm. Lewis Powell was a lawyer, prominent lawyer in business, and in fact, he was on the, the uh a board of one of the tobacco companies, I think it was Philip Morris. 1970, there were 1,900 bombings of businesses in the United States. A significant portion of the population in the United States didn't like business, didn't respect business, you know, thought it was terrible, revolutionary socialists and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, Lewis Powell and his network were rightly concerned about the future of business. And he wrote a memo to uh, his neighbor, who was the chair of the Chamber of Commerce, uh, and he rather dispassionately, and I think accurately, analyzed the situation and said that, you know, academics and young people are uh, anti-business, and it's up to business to figure out how uh, we can do a better job of advocating for business. And that memo has been widely credited with starting uh, or encouraging uh, m- many members of the business community to start to invest in systematically advocating for business. And so they did. And they advocated for free market economics and uh, the invisible hand that in a market system, if uh, a market system is the best way to make sure that people will maximize uh, the quality of the products they have. They'll make them cheaper and so on. Uh, and markets produce good things. And there's some truth to that. If you don't think that markets are useful, then turn in your cell phone because the cell phone wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for market competition. Mm-hmm. But it's not essentially true. It's not always true. And so uh, there's a movement against uh, the uh, free market economics called evenomics, and it's an evolutionary uh, approach to economics. And if you go to this view of life, uh, you'll find numerous essays on that, and I cover it in Rebooting Capitalism. Uh, But we have to have um, we have to have a social movement. Um, I I think one of the things that I I advocate. Uh, I published a paper um, on the nurture consilience. And if you go to to um, Valley Action website and, and look for the publications, you'll find that paper. And I basically argue, and this is comes out of the nurture effect, that in fact, we know what people need to thrive. And that is the basis around which I think we could create a coalition of not just of behavioral science organizations, but of all the organizations that are trying to improve mm-hmm. well-being, 
that we come together around a vision of a society in which which is organized to ensure the well-being of every person, mm-hmm. every person. Mm-hmm. I think it was the uh, old movie uh, quite a long time ago, an old Humphrey Bogart movie, and he's long actor, it's long gone, but uh, Sabrina, and in that movie he gives a little speech where they ask, well, why are you a businessman? And uh, he gives a nice little speech about, well, I do it for the people, people that never saw a dime. Now they have dollars in their pocket and so on and so forth. And that I thought that view was a very standard American view about capitalism and entrepreneurship. I guess you're saying that the unrestricted capitalism uh, really right. needs to be taken a look at. Right, right. And there's a, there's a movement underway. I mean, there's a lot of push for reform. And, and let me... Let me say something else about, I want to say something about capitalism and racism, because in in, uh, rebooting capitalism, I describe the way in which um, business discovered, I mean, you know, here are all these people who are trying to advocate for free market economics, small government, low taxes, and so on, and they've succeeded, you know, very well. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, they, They've been reinforced for their advocacy. And if you look, uh, there's a chart in Rebooting Capitalism that shows that the percent of wealth uh, that goes to the the top uh, one-tenth of one percent has just gone way up in the last, since the 1970s, thanks to the advocacy for um, uh, free market economics. And it, it's really selection by consequences. They tried this, didn't work. Okay. They tried that. It worked. Okay. Well, they kept that in their act. They amplified that and they got better and better in reducing uh, their taxation and, and increasing their wealth. Okay. So what does that have to do with racism? Well, I don't think that the, the conservative billionaires set out to increase racism. They simply found that if they could uh, convince poor white people that big government was simply giving things away to those people, uh, they could get the political support of, of uh, uh, poor white people. And, you know, what happened with Trump was simply that he came forward with an, a, an, ex, a, an explicit, uh, you know, kind of racism beyond any, any of the dog whistle racism that previous conservatives had, had promoted. Uh, and he's he's been very successful in doing that. And so now I think we have some systematic um, efforts, a growing movement to understand the, the degree to which racism has harmed all of us. And I would particularly recommend Heather McGee's book, which is uh, called The Sum of Us, because she points out that in fact, um, convincing all these people that government is bad and that you don't want those people to you know, be getting the things that they get has harmed everyone. And she gives the example of um, when the, when the uh, civil rights bills were passed in the 1960s, uh, it was uh, that when they were enforced, it, one of the things that were enforced was that black kids could be able to swim in, in public swimming pools along with white kids. And she has pictures of the pools around the country that were simply filled with dirt and they closed those pools rather than integrate them. Now, who benefited from that? You know, I mean, you're somebody who's concerned that the, those people are getting more than I'm getting. And so you say, yeah, that, you know, you're, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. Uh, and so, we're in a situation now where the the racism is overt and it, it's um, it's a struggle. But I, I am hopeful uh, that we are going to promote the well-being of every person. But we have to convince enough people who are on the Trump bandwagon to slip off that bandwagon unnoticed. And I think Biden has got a good approach to it because he's just saying you're going to have jobs. You're going to have good-paying jobs. You're going to have health care, you know, and so on. Uh, and so people can turn from doing QAnon to, you know, working on uh, sustainability if if they've got a good job. So 
Anyway, much to be done, but we need a social movement where everybody's working together. And that's what Values to Action is about. We're trying to make some contribution to that movement. You, you think much, uh, and around the world, uh, much of the conflicts around the world are centrally economic uh, in nature. That in other words, if the economic factor wasn't there, that's almost unimaginable, but if the economic factors weren't there, there would not be so much conflict in so many of these countries around the world. Well, you know, um, capitalism as it's, as it's currently practiced is, is you know, it's, it was what Milton Friedman argued uh, back in the 1980s, that uh, the job of a corporation is to make money, and you just let them make money and everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's, that's international. And... Um, if, if that's the only criterion for corporations, we're going to continue to have these problems. The B Corp movement and the conscious capitalism movement, and, and now even the business roundtable says that they've embraced this, though. This I got to see if they actually do, is um, that, a, that a corporation should have the responsibility of the, sure, the well-being of investors. And by the way, a, an employee-owned company, they could be the investors. And it should be concerned about the well-being of its employees, its customers, and the society as a whole. And we need to establish those norms, and we need to make government policy based on those norms, not based on the norm that the, the, the profits of the corporation is all we care about in our, in our policymaking, but policies that ensure the well-being of the population. Mm-hmm. You had not met me before, but I've, I've been in your presence because I was sitting next to you, I think it was in November of 2018, uh, the uh, Association for Behavior Analysis International had a substance abuse conference, and I think it's the only one they ever had. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And you uh, actually, I thought you really, you really, uh, uh, your, your statement on there was the most memorable one, I think, of that. And you'd alluded to that earlier about the pharmaceutical int- uh, interests and how that's led to our current predicament with uh, with drug use. So what would you say, a little recap of that, and what are your views on that now? Well, I, I talked a little earlier in this conversation about the, the fact that the drug companies found it profitable uh, to market uh, opioids, uh, arguing that they were uh, not harmful, not addictive, and so on. Uh, and I mean, you look at what they did. Uh, there was one town in West Virginia that uh, they, I don't know, there were millions of pills going through that tiny town. It, you know, couldn't have just been for them. Uh, the, the industry cared not at all about it. Um, but, you know, the other thing I remember from that conference was that I realized toward the end that there hadn't been enough said about prevention. Uh, and, and largely because the, the expertise of people there was largely, uh, you know, some really good things that they've developed in terms of reducing uh, uh, substance use, treating addiction and so on, mm-hmm. uh, but not as much on prevention. Um, and so we ended up uh, publishing a paper for a special issue that came out of that on prevention. Um, so... I'm not sure I have more to say about that other than it's another example of the way in which we have to have uh, policies that require com- companies to uh, minimize their harm and lose money when they uh, minimize their harm. Well, I just don't think most people yeah, are, are thinking of a connection between how pharmaceutical companies are acting and uh, drug use as a whole and how they could be connected. Yes. Well, in fact, I've been waiting for the tobacco industry to buy into the marijuana mm-hmm. marketing. And it, it, and I've been watching because Oregon is one of the places that legalized it. And I've been watching. Uh, there are no strong provisions regarding the marketing of marijuana. Uh, and there need to be because it's the same thing. You know, you got a product, you're going to sell it to young people and, uh, you know, they'll pursue your brand so. mm-hmm. do you do you have an opinion on whether drugs should be 
legalized or decriminalized? How, how should we handle something like that? Well, um, if you look at Portugal, uh, they have uh, decriminalized all drugs mm-hmm. and put much more uh, into uh, treatment and recovery. Uh, in Oregon, uh, we have a significant uh, drug problem, and uh, there's uh, I, I think it's improved somewhat. Most of the people who had drug abuse problems were unable to get treatment. So we need to increase the availability of treatment, but we also need to implement preventive interventions uh, that don't that make it less likely that people get on a track that they start using substances. I mean, one of the reasons people drink, which by the way, alcohol is the uh, most... Um, problematic of the substances because it um, it accounts for the most deaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so we need policies that, that prevent uh, the development of problems with alcohol. One of them is to there needs to be greater uh, restriction on marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the evidence is that the marketing, you know, a teenager will see more mm-hmm. ads for alcohol than an adult mm-hmm. because of the things that they watch on mm-hmm. TV. So we need to to uh, regulate the marketing of these substances, but we also need to prevent, um, to, 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 to make sure that, that kids are, are succeeding, uh, that they live in, in families that are nurturing, that are not coercive, that are skilled in is supporting the development of each child. We need schools that ensure that kids learn to read, that they learn to cooperate. And, you know, we do those things and our population is going to be increasingly mm-hmm. uh, better off. We need nurturing environments mm-hmm. that minimize uh, coercion and conflict, that uh, richly reinforce pro-social behavior, that limit opportunities and influences uh, for problem behavior. And that promotes psychological flexibility, which is the, I didn't actually use that term, but when you're helping somebody to be clear about their values and be willing to work toward their values uh, and be willing to have the thoughts and feelings that come up, that's psychological flexibility. Mm-hmm. The, the, the policies you promote are there to promote people's well-being and, and that flexibility that they need. Yes, yes. And, and and promote the values and norms that would make that the context for what we do in a society. Well, that's excellent. I'm, I'm going to get your capitalism book then uh, because I really enjoyed the nurture effect uh, quite a bit. That, that was kind of the total list of my questions, I guess. But I do appreciate you coming on. You want to say something else? Yes, you can get Rebooting Capitalism at, at the Values to Action website. Should I give you, uh, actually, if you search valuesaction.com, you'll find it. So I'll, I'll find it and I'll, I'll put it on there. Is, is there anything and else you'd like to say? I invite people to join Values to Action. We have got, currently we've got about 145 people who've joined, and they're excited about making a difference. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I have uh, realized in, I, I've talked to literally hundreds of behavior and a- analysts in my travel since the, the book came out. I probably talked to 25 or more behavior analytic organizations. But what I so frequently hear is that a lot of people feel that like they're trapped in only working in developmental disabilities or only working with the, uh, people with Asperger's syndrome and you know what they were told was that this stuff this science could be relevant to solving all of the problems of society and so what we're trying to do is expand the repertoire of behavior analysts Mm -hmm. Uh, we've got a a couple of we've got an action circle that's working on how we can get more behaviorally skilled people into healthcare settings to provide help that the people in those health settings you know aren't necessarily equipped to do like Uh, have a kid with autism, have a blood draw. Uh, You need a behaviorist to, you know, make that happen. So uh, 
you join values to action and we uh, I think we can help to expand the repertoire of behavior analysts and expand their impact in society. Yeah. Yeah. Almost every behavior analyst I speak to, they want to expand uh, their work into other areas. It's, it's values to action dot org. Values to action dot org. Yeah, yes, you've got it. Tony, thank you so much for for the work you're doing and everything that you've uh, and the, taking the time out to tell us uh, everything you have today. Maybe if I get it, I get to your capitalism book, uh, we could have another interview. Happy to do it. Okay, and, and I greatly appreciate your asking me to do this. So uh, thank you. My pleasure. And, and 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 thank you for your work in getting the word out about our science. Always. Tony, have a a great rest of your afternoon, and uh, maybe we'll be speaking to you in the near future. I look forward to it. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.